What is up, people? And thank you again for listening to this very special edition of the New Generation Sports Talk podcast. We've been trying to get a lot of interviews during this pandemic. We had one a couple of weeks ago, and we're very happy to have a very special guest, Kendall and I, who Kendall, of course, joins me as always. Uh, the undefeated ESPN, the undefeated is Mark Spears, joins us on the show today. Mark, thank you so much for doing this. It's been nine months in the making. I'm really happy we were able to set this up. No problem, man. I had to fix my Janet Jackson uh, microphone there, man. Like I'm in a concert. <laughs> no, I've been, we've been trying to put this up, shoot, for months now. I know. Long before the pandemic showed up. So, you know, pleasure to finally talk to y'all, man. I know, yeah, I got to meet my, uh, Mark over at the uh, NABJ convention. And for any young journalists, black journalists, NABJ has been uh, great for me. I know it's been great for Mark. He's been really involved with that. And we've been trying to work on something ever since. I'm really excited that I was able to finally get him on. So, uh, so obviously, Mark Spears, you guys probably know. You probably see him on ESPN. You've seen his articles with The Undefeated. He's written for Yahoo. He's written for the Boston Globe. Written um, uh, for the for uh, in Denver. He's been pretty much all over the NBA uh, NBA landscape when it comes to journalism. And I feel like I have a certain kinship to Mark because um, I read that you always wanted to be in sports journalism. As early as like seventh grade, and you know, I always tell the story on this show about how I was doing Knicks play-by-play games as a six-year-old. You know, <laughs> my so my parents knew very early that I wanted to be involved in sports uh, broadcasting and sports journalism. And uh, but the one thing you also know is about Mark, if you ever meet him, is he's really tall. Um, when I first met you, you were like at least six five. I think you six five there probably six six. I'm seven one now. I grew. <laughs> so so then I. I I like to say six. I'm six six. I'll go with six six. Okay, yeah, and 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 I learned that uh, that you used to hoop back in the day. You played college ball before uh, suffering an injury at uh, San Jose State in high school. You were an all league hooper in San Jose, which uh, I've actually done some uh, reporting on, like some really good players coming out of San Jose. If you guys don't know about that area, um, yeah. what what was it like? I guess first of all, I wanted you to describe your game. But also, what was that transition like going from being a player uh, to then first having to cover baseball, which I don't know if a lot of people knew you had to cover, and then later kind of covering the NBA? Ooh, well, where should I start first? Let me know it, where you want me to what, start What your first. game? How, how, what was your game like? If someone had described Mark Spears as a player, what would they say? Kind of patterned myself after uh, Charles Barkley. Mm. Um, whether I was him, that's <laughs> That's another story, but I, I, I patterned myself after him. Um, couldn't shoot outside of five feet. Was a horrible free throw shooter. But I, uh, my last year in, that I did play uh, was at the University of DC, a Division two school. I often patterned myself after um, Charles, man. Which I, I don't know if I've ever told told Charles that. Uh, but I was like a undersized four, um, very physical player. I think my best high school game, I had uh, 32 points and 24 rebounds. And um, my best college game was actually my last one playing for the University of D.C. I had 32. But I had a lackluster college basketball career. Um, Things didn't work out at San Jose State for a variety of reasons, uh, which kind of have helped me get to the undefeated uh, for part of those reasons. A knee injury combined with a, the coach not liking what I was writing about the lack of black coaches in college basketball. That's another story. Um, right. But, um, you know, I started 
getting into journalism in the seventh grade. Uh, we had a career day uh, in which the Golden State Warriors actually had a representative that came to my junior high school, Silvendale Junior High School in San Jose. And he actually pointed at me and asked me, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And at that time, my love for basketball was just on another level. But I played Little League Baseball. I, um, I played, you know, football. I, I played soccer for a few years. I just love sports. And he asked me, what do I want to do when, when I grew up? And I'm like, I want to play for y'all. And he's like, well, what are you going to do if you can't play for us? Or what are you going to do if you are hurt? And I'm like, I don't know. And, but he <laughs> gave me some amazing advice. He goes, if you can combine what you love most in life with what you do best in school, you know, you could find a career that, you could be happy going to every day. Amazing advice to give a seventh grader, you know, and, and I really, really thought about it. And um, at that time, I, I, I read Sports Illustrated front back to cover, you know, front to cover. And uh, I remember seeing a stat in there when I was in the seventh grade that less than 2% of college basketball players make it to the NBA. And that stat, like, really, really stuck with me. And I was like, dang, if if I can't make it to the NBA, like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, like, I, I, obviously the stats aren't working for me. And I really thought about what that man said. He said, so what do you love the most? And I was like, I love sports. What do you do best? Well, I'm terrible in science. I'm terrible in math. But I could write. I'm good in English, creative. He said, combine those two things and you'll find a career that you're happy to go to every day. So I was like, sports writer, sports writer. I like, if I can't play in the Super Bowl, if I can't be playing in the NBA finals or playing in a World Series, the next best thing is to be there, right? And that was like something I thought of in the seventh grade. So we had my teacher, Mrs. Thompson. She asked our class, uh, which was, I was in some like special class for creative thinkers. This is called Horizons. I don't know how I'm starting to remember this stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> he asked me, um, she asked our class to write a letter as an assignment to somebody uh, in a field that we we're interested in. So I wrote a letter to a sports writer from the San Jose Mercury News by the name of Mark Purdy. And he wrote me back basically telling me everything I needed to do from seventh grade through college to be a sports writer. He's like, write on the junior high school paper. When you get to high school, take all the typing classes you could take, write on the school paper or write on the school yearbook. Once you get to college, you know, write on the school paper, get as many internships as possible. And I still remember the, how the letter looked and in, in, in the envelope and the sounds of Mercury News emblem on it. I like still remember the letter and I, and I kept it like it was like this journalism Bible and really, really paid attention to it. And so I actually started my first writing job was in the seventh grade covering the eighth grade flag football team for the Silvendale junior high school paper. And the seventh grade grader made the decision to put the J in my pen name. That's where the Mark <laughs> J Spears from like my, my middle name is Joseph. And I decided to put it in my pen name in the seventh grade, and I've been using it ever since. So if you go down to Silvendale Junior High somewhere and go look in the archives, 
there are some stories somewhere probably don't exist anymore. They probably threw it away that include my name on it, covering a flag football team, the eighth grade flag football team. And wow. then when I went to high school, I took all the typing classes I could take. I wrote on the school paper. There happened to be a guy named Mick Van Valkenburg who worked for the San Jose Mercury News who basically after school ran our school paper. So I got to talk to a journalist that was like a full-time journalist every day. Wow. Well, writing on the school paper yeah. and learn from him like and he he gave me more insight and more inspiration and and i'm playing high school basketball at the time and my grades were terrible uh, i had a 2.2 gpa in high school i actually had an offer to go play at columbia uh in the ivy league in division one and then they saw my grades and they're like nah yeah yeah and that, that like just still bothers me to this day that mm. my grades i like weren't good enough to go to this Ivy League school, which perhaps had the best journalism school in the country. Right. Messed that could have been in New York City hooping. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, messed that up. And then I went to the junior college route, wrote on a school paper at Foothill College, played there for two years. Um, actually, after those two years, I, I sent a letter to the, uh, I needed an internship. And I'm like, well, shoot, I'm still green in the business do an internship for free so i wrote the san jose mercury news i mean the san jose metro which is a weekly newspaper in san jose and ask them if i could write their sports stories for the summer and all they have a bunch of neighborhood papers and a weekly entertainment paper that's still in san jose and the lady's like yeah we have all these neighborhood papers and nobody wants to write sports you can write all the sports stories you want (laughs) it was a perfect opportunity then I wrote for him was at a three-on-three Nike three-on-three basketball tournament and Tim Hardaway and um, uh, Chris Mullen were there they were like my first interviews for a publication oh wow and I, was so, I remember I was so nervous I told Tim Hardaway this I was like super nervous interviewing him <laughs> uh, like run TMC was hot and yeah. I did a story for them and a bunch of like any story that came in that was sports related they gave it to me and I got clips and put it on my resume and people didn't know that I wasn't getting paid. They knew I was writing for this place and getting experience. And then after that, I went to the University of DC, played there for a year, the academics were terrible. Now I'm like good in school and care about school. (laughs) And so I actually, they weren't offering two of my classes going into my senior year. So I gave up a full scholarship, transferred to San Jose State. but I applied for an internship through the National Association of Black Journalists. Uh, and I applied for like 20 other internships, got veto everywhere. Veto, veto, veto. Wow. But through the NABJ, I think I was the last person they picked, man. Wow. The last. And I got an internship in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Did an internship in Grand Rapids. They had a Unity paper in 94. It was the first ever all... Uh, minority journalism convention and it was nabj the hispanic group asian group indian group all came together so i got to write on the first ever unity paper got better experience with that did an internship in grand rapids interviewed some young fighter by the name of floyd mayweather covered a cup game did detroit lions uh practice minor league baseball so now my clips are 
pretty good. Yeah, you're in the big leagues now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get back to San Jose State. Like, actually, also during my redshirt year at San Jose State, um, I had a teammate by the name of Terry Cannon, who was our star player. Shout out to Terry Cannon. Um, and he was getting interviewed by a San Jose Mercury news columnist by the name of Bud Geraci, who one of the greatest columns, columnists I've ever read. So I waited for, you know, I'm big on the squeaky wheel gets the oil. I waited for Bud to finish his interview with Terry and waited for him. And then when Bud was over, I said, uh, Mr. Dracy, can I talk to you? Told him about my writing dreams and what I wanted to do and what I had been doing. You know, like three days later, he had me in the San Jose Mercury News newsroom taking calls for high school football scores. Mm. Typing in the stats into the computer. Two months later after that, when time permitted, now I'm writing high school basketball stories because the people there learned to trust me. And I was writing high school basketball stories for the San Jose Mercury News, the paper I grew up with, and I'm getting paid for these stories. San <laughs> um, Jose State uh, redshirted, blew out my knee, did an in, uh, try to rehab when I went back to um, Grand Rapids, came back. And the coach didn't like the fact that I actually wrote a story for the uh, student paper about the lack of black coaches in college basketball at the time. And actually wrote that um, I wrote that uh, every black college basketball player in the country should sit out a game. And after that, me and him were at odds. And he kind of, in a little interesting way for another day, got me pushed off the team. Wow. Because he didn't like the fact that I wrote that, which perhaps is part of my ire that helps me write what I write for the undefeated, right? So, yeah. Um, so I ended up graduating from San Jose State, and now I won a first-round pick basketball-wise, but journalism-wise, I'm like a first-round pick, man. I got um, internships offers from the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, Dallas Morning News, which at that time had a Sunday sports page that was 75 pages long. Yeah. Now wow. I'm like the guy. Like, yeah. The year before, nobody even knew who I was nor cared. And I also got this offer for a two-year program, internship program in uh, Portland at the Oregonian. Ended up betting my, on myself and uh, went to the Dallas Morning News, interned there. And from there, I got an internship at the, uh, I mean, uh, I got my first job at the Tulsa World covering Arkansas's football and basketball team, making 19000 before taxes. Whew. But the SEC, I didn't really had no bills, so being broke was nothing new to me anyway. <laughs> um, and I was covering Nolan Richardson, uh, one of the legendary coaches in sports history. Yes. And and like my career all started from there, but it all basically started from me writing Mark Purdy a letter when I was in the seventh grade. Wow. That's that's crazy. And I think it's awesome that uh for Kendall Gold, I think it's awesome that you you know, that experience with getting that last spot with NABJ and how you've been able to still be so a part of the program, um, I think is also really awesome. Because how many people, you know, don't you know, as my uh, one of my mentors used to say, you know, you go up the elevator, you got to, you know, send it back yeah. down to help. And I think that the fact that you've been a part of that is awesome. Oh, I mean, it's, um, I, I kind of scold some of my fellow journalists sometimes. They're like, man, I don't, 
I don't need to go to the NABJ convention, man. I got a job. I said it ain't about you. Mm. You succeeded. Go help somebody else. Like, right. you know, I I learned a long time ago that uh, a lot of me going to the convention is to be there for young journalists like yourself. Mm-hmm. To be available to answer questions, like to me, like David Aldridge is. Shout out to David is the master of it. Like, and I try to follow him. Like. When he goes to NABJ, he basically is like, I'm here for the younger journalists. Yes. What What do you need? What do you want? And, like, um, <laughs> I was actually, I hope these two guys are listening. I was, like, pissed after the last convention, uh, during the last convention, because, you know, we have our business meeting. And after the business meeting, I like to sit outside and be available for all the young journalists who have questions. And that might be, like, 15, 20 kids that might have a question over the course of NABJ and I got pulled into some ESPN meeting about a, a documentary, uh, uh, interview that I actually did with David Stern. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. Shout out to David Stern, RIP. My condolences to the Stern family, yeah. too, but I got on those guys. I'm like, look, man, we could talk about this, but I'm here for these these young journalists and you're taking away time from them right we're gonna be real quick we're gonna be real quick so i go in another room i talk to them this conversation takes about 15 20 minutes when i come back everybody's pretty much gone man and i was i was really upset about that because that's something at the convention that i love doing the most is like talking to the young reporters young journalists and and for any young journalists like it's sad that they're not going to be this convention because of covid yeah. But next year when it comes back, like, don't be shy to go up to your journalism heroes and introduce yourself and ask questions. That's what we're there for. And that's what I tell, like, the older journalists, like, it ain't about you and about about you not needing a job. It's about you giving back to the to the person, to the youth and pulling them up because there was somebody that pulled you up, too. That's what's up. Wow. Yeah. Um, my next question is, uh, you know, obviously you talk about your your uh, kind of upbringing in journalism and obviously a lot of that has been, you know, around the NBA and being able to cover the NBA in a more traditional sense. But during this kind of these unusual times, you've now had to transition to not yeah. covering the NBA remotely. Um, what has that transition been like? What? How is that? Uh, how have you adjusted uh, to this time with really no basketball? It's a suspended season. And where do you think we are in terms of Adam Silver's decision and the players' decision to uh, potentially resume the season? Um, you know what helped prepare me for this was the uh, lockout, I believe. Was it 2012, 2013, the lockout? Yeah, yeah I think it was 2012. I, yeah. and, and not that it was obviously to this kind of like health scare not even you know it wasn't a health scare it was a a, a a work stoppage but if you think about it like the lockout basically was from july to like mid-december yep and there had been other lockouts since i've been in the 21 seasons i've been covering the nba but nothing to that length so you know, they had to remember they had to shorten season was it like 65 games or something like that. And it didn't start till around like Christmas time uh, that year. But 
at that time, like I had to be really creative and try to come up with stuff, you know, and there were like a lot of players like barnstorming. I think like a bunch of NBA stars went and played in the Philippines. Yeah. That's when the famous Kobe versus James Harden game at the, uh, <laughs> yeah, Drew in League. LA, yeah. at the Drew League took place. Uh, I was going to a lot of Drew League games. I remember I, I even interviewed the game, mm. the rapper. Yeah. About he like ran a Drew League team. And so you just had to be really, really creative. So I kind of went back to that mind frame now, like, okay you got to be creative and initially a lot of players didn't want to talk so you, you it's it now it's like where all your relationships are extremely important mm. uh where getting people to call you back for beat writers that don't have strong relationships with the players that cover it's tough trying to get somebody yeah. to call you back when you never had their phone number but luckily through my years i've always been blessed with having uh, good relationships with a lot of players, a lot of front office people, a lot of coaches, like, and and so, and then I, I'm real. I try to be always been creative. Sometimes I'll just sit or, sit quietly and read uh, team names, close my eyes, read, look at a team. Okay, Atlanta Hawks. Okay, what's interesting about them? Boston Celtics. What's interesting about? You know what I mean? Like, go through yeah. it, Charlotte Hornets. Um, and write down different ideas that I can implement later. And, you know, sometimes uh, you got to go outside the box, too. Like, I've done a story on NBA chaplains, um, how they're dealing with COVID, how, uh, NBA in-house DJs. Um, obviously, the last dance <laughs> has helped a lot of us journalists have something to write about. Yeah, um, for sure. During this time, i uh, we started at the Undefeated. A couple shows included Round Ball Rap, which is actually the name of an old radio show I used to have in Denver when I was working for the Denver Post. That that Popeye Jones used to be my co-host, and then <laughs> Hall of Famer Dan Issel was my second co-host. And I brought that name back, and now Kenya Martin's my co-host. And we've had some really, really great guests, and uh, most of our talk has been about, you know, the the, the last dance. So. But now that's over, all right, now I got to get back to no hand-delivered thing to talk <laughs> about. I got to be creative some more. So yeah. that's kind of, I think the lockout helped me figure out how to have that right creative mindset today where there is no basketball being played. In terms of, you know, what's next, you know, I've heard a lot of talk about there being games in Orlando, there being games in Las Vegas, and maybe you send the Eastern Conference teams to Orlando, to the Disney uh, facility, maybe you mm -hmm. in LA, I mean in, in Vegas, you go, you send the Western Conference teams there and have them stay at the MGM, where there's a hotel connected to the arena. Yeah. Um, just the thing though is like, how do you ensure that everybody's gonna stay healthy? Exactly. How do you ensure? How can you promise me that nobody will get sick? Can you promise me that nobody will die? If something tragic happens, who's responsible? Mm. That's that's the scary thing for the NBA. That's the scary thing for the teams. That's the scary thing for the players. Now I think the players are just more probably cavalier. They want to get back. They're younger. They're not thinking about their sixty-five-year-old coach maybe getting sick. Exactly. 
you know, or the general manager of the team, maybe, or, or not even themselves getting sick. There was a 30-year-old baseball player from the Oakland A's farm system who died from COVID, you know. Right. Um, so, sadly, tragically, nightmarishly, if the NBA comes back, that's a reality to what could happen. Yeah. And so you're going to basically tell all these guys to go stay in a hotel room and not go outside. And then they're going to have their families with them who may go outside. And what about the people working at the hotels? They don't live there. What, you going to make them live at the hotels, too? Right. They're not going to go outside? Like, have you lady that cleans your room, the right. person that cooks your food, like, <laughs> it just takes one person to have it right. to get a whole team sick. And, like, to me, if I'm, like, the leader of a team, I'm telling my guys, like, look, it's going to be the hardest thing that we've ever had to do, but I don't, I think it's probably better for players not to have anybody with them. Yeah. To just be the, the team and that's it and knock that season out because if the season were to resume, the way it sounds like to me, if one of the players get it, they ain't stopping. Yes, that's what it sounds like. No matter who you are. That they're gone for two weeks. Imagine like a superstar or Kawhi or LeBron or, or or Giannis like getting it before the start of the finals. Yeah, they're not playing in the finals. Yeah, and so that's that's the yeah. reality of it. Yeah. What if somebody gets sick? What if somebody passes? We had one superstar in the NBA whose mom passed. Yes, I think. Yeah. I don't know if Carl Anthony Towns wants to play. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just, to me, I don't know if it's worth it. I think, sadly, finances blur reality. Mm. And so I, I myself, do I think it would be the right idea to come back? I don't think so. Do I think they're going to come back? I think they're going to try. Yes. Do you, have you? We heard in baseball, Blake Snell, who's a pitcher from the Rays, yeah. kind of speak up about him saying, "I'm not coming back at a certain rate uh, because of the dangers." Have you heard any sentiment around the league uh, from agents or players about any real concerns, uh, or do you feel like it's been a unanimous thing about wanting to play? I think if he said he was going to come back. He wouldn't come back for health reasons. I think maybe more people might ride with what he's saying. The financial part, everybody's getting hit financially. Yeah. He got people out of work, so I think it's going to be hard for him to get sympathy from folks that ain't got a penny coming in. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that it, society has never uh, has sympathy for a rich person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You like. Yeah. <laughs> So I saw today, like, half of, like, restaurant workers don't have jobs right now. You think they care about this dude getting a pay cut, millions of dollars? Uh, For the NBA players, I think the one thing that Adam Silver has done a great job of, and maybe baseball is doing it now, is trying to be transparent on what the financial situation is and what they're losing you know, like mm-hmm. what they say, the fans are like 40% of the income of the the revenue. Fans wow. come to games, and that's gone. So, like, 
be honest about the situation, you know, and that's, I think the NBA has done at least a good job in that regard is letting them know what they've lost by having no fans there, uh, but what they can potentially gain by completing the season. So I think it's just inevitable that you have to take a pay cut because the money ain't the same. Yeah. yeah. But if exactly. they don't finish the season out, then I, I wouldn't be surprised if the NBA has to give back some sponsorship money. Yeah. Yeah. It's the season, other monies. So, um, to me, if a player says, I don't want to do it because I'm worried about getting sick, getting somebody else sick, getting dying, what, there's no argument for that. Yeah. There's no debate for that. If, if you don't feel comfortable playing for health reasons, I'm, I understand, man. I see you next season. Yeah, financial reasons. I think it is it, it, hard to wave that flag right now. No, right, right. No, I that's, do that's think... a financial problem. I think all three of us wish we had. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, now we talked about I the last dance playing with a mask on, gloves on. Uh, <laughs> I, I had, I, and and this is uh, that kind of money. I might, you know, I used to hate playing pickup basketball with the dudes that wore baseball caps. Yeah, <laughs> as a player, I'd have a mask on, shield, everything. Yeah, you, <laughs> you talk bad about me all you want. I'll be out there hooping with a shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> like, it's funny. Me, yeah, me and Kendall on the podcast a couple days ago. You know, shoot. Yeah, me and Kendall on the podcast a couple days ago was talking about maybe the referees need to even be, you know, calling the games from, a, you know, some some maybe Secaucus or somewhere. I don't know. They can't. I think the media won't be there. Yeah. I think it'll be similar to like what you're seeing with the Korean baseball league. Like they're calling games from Bristol. Yeah. From a different country. Yeah. Outside yeah. the world. Yeah, exactly. So will I be there? Will the media be there? Mm-hmm. That will be an interesting thing to see. Um, I could, I could like, does a sort of sideline reporter be there? I think the NBA is probably going to have as minimal, make it as minimal as possible. Yeah. And, and so I, I have no clue what kind of access, if any, that we will get. Mm. But I do think the NBA and teams realize that they need to, they need the publicity. They want this etched in historical stone, like written about it and, and covered and, and historically, like I saw, uh, a story about San Jose State. Uh, my, one of my alma maters also got a master's from LSU. Um, 2019, how the school dealt with the Spanish flu. And they had stories about it and pictures. And like now, 100 years later, we're reading about it and, and looking at it. And so I think there'll be some historical value in allowing the media to cover this in a, in a healthy fashion and safe fashion. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit. We talked a little bit about how uh, a lot of us have been eagerly watching The Last Dance since it's the only real basketball, new basketball content that we have. And I think it's uh, fascinating to me that you started covering uh, basketball at the Denver Post in 99, which is just as MJ is left the building and, um, and the, you know, the Bulls are now in kind of a, a different, a different, a different uh, yes, it's a whole different world. Um, yeah. 
And one of the things I think I've seen, I'm sure you've seen as well, is that there seems to be a generational divide in how people have digested this 10-part series. Um, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about the NBA during that era? And like, like what was the void of Mike being gone as you step into covering the league like that? Well, one thing that was interesting about Jordan is and when people ask me, did I get to know him? Like, I was talking to Michael Wilbon recently, and he's like, yeah, man, you know, Mike talks about you and you're writing sometimes. I'm like, he knows who I am? <laughs> he's like, well, yeah, you were, you were around that time. Didn't, didn't I like Mike. I wasn't in your circle then, man. I, <laughs> I was uh, some young journalist trying to figure it out. I wasn't going to get drinks with Mike after a game. I, yeah. I didn't love you like that. Yeah, that's, a certain, that's a certain tier. <laughs> yeah. Maybe now, like, well, we have a barbecue now. You there? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but when I started covering basketball in NBA '99, like Jordan came to the Wizards two years later, I believe it was too late for me to build a relationship with him. Mm. Like, I wasn't covering the Wizards. I was covering a team that played him twice a year. And then maybe I seen him at the All Star game, and the Wizards weren't good enough to really make the playoffs or do anything. I don't, did, I don't even think, did Jordan even play a playoff game with the Wizards? I don't never. think so. Never. They never made the so playoffs. So my access to him was minimal. Um, I think he knows who I am just because I've been around so long now, and he reads. He's a voracious reader, I'm, I'm told. But he was so big at that time that when there was a game, it was like 20 people around him at shoot-around, 30 people around him after the game. I might have got one or two questions in, but I'm just some black kid in a group. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I wasn't able to build that relationship. But it's funny because to me, like, the Wizards are like the lost tapes. You never see those <laughs> any highlights from those Wizard days, right? Yeah. Like, nobody talks about them. I remember going to a game when the Nuggets played at Washington with Sean Leonard who was actually, to me, one of the greatest shooters of this game. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Rashawn Leonard. Oh, I'm, I'm a Knicks fan oh, from yeah. the 90s, so I, yeah. I know Rashawn too, too well. He could shoot it. And one time, great quick story on Rashawn Leonard, uh, there was this guy named Mark Anthony, Oakland guy, who was talking trash. He was a big-time uh, NBA heckler, and he got um, Rashawn Leonard mad, and Rashawn scored 21 points in one quarter and basically put the Warriors away in one quarter. And it was in it. I remember the the Warriors players were mad at him for firing Vashon Leonard up. It was one of the greatest quarters I've ever seen. But I bring up Vashon Leonard because Vashon Leonard could shoot it, but I don't think he could dunk. And he might be <laughs> mad for saying that. Like, if he could get one in, he could squeak it in. In one game, and I think it was Jordan's last season, he blocked Jordan's shot. And stood over him while Jordan was laying on the ground. And I was like, yeah, it's time for him. This ain't, this ain't air. This yeah. is ground. You know what I mean? <laughs> this, this ain't the same guy that we were accustomed to seeing. Uh, Vashon, that might have been Vashon Leonard. Shout out to Vashon Leonard. His only block of his career. <laughs> so, but that time, you know, I've been talking about it in some of my tweets. Like, we could go to practice then. And they would be like, okay, you can't be on your cell phones. You can't be on your computers. 
which there was really no wireless then, you know, in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, you had to, like, if you came to practice, you had to be there. Like, practice started at 10. We had to be in the gym 945, and we couldn't speak, only at a whisper. And they used to let us watch the entire practice, which was great because you learned a lot about why guys are playing or not playing and saw scrimmages and learned about, oh, this guy's starting to get better and uh, why isn't this guy playing? Oh, now I know why this guy's not playing. And then around 2005, a bunch of NBA coaches got hitting like media being in there because somebody like there was an unwritten rule that if there was a fight, we didn't write about it. Mm. Some people started breaking those rules and with with blogging and and there was no Twitter yet, but there was like uh, you could put out a blog or or a, a blog post stuff started coming out and then the coaches shut that down and it became you could watch the last 15 minutes of practice but like Jerry Sloan the coach of the Jazz like he used to come and eat eat dinner with the media before the game wow. him and a, him and a couple of assistant coaches so you would go in the media room 30 minutes before a game and Jerry Sloan was in there in the media room getting his <laughs> food like like the rest of us <laughs> He would sit down there, eat dinner, and I got to be cool with him. So I, when they were when the Nuggets were playing the Jazz, I could sit next to Jerry, wow, and pick his brain and talk to him and laugh. He thought I was kind of funny, and you know, and a lot of times the conversations were just about life, and we didn't even really talk about basketball. And so, like the access then, like if you remember when the Celtics won, and I covered the Celtics for two years, you hear. Yeah. Kevin Garnett, anything is possible. <laughs> like, if you look in the background, you see me. If you watch that game, I was like five feet away from the Celtics bench. Um, I remember when Big Baby cried after Garnett cursed him out. Mm. We don't get that seat no more. We don't get that access no more. It's, it's kind of sad because now, and hopefully maybe during this time, NBA and the players appreciate the media a little more like they're like look at there's always going to be some kind of media fight with some player or something like that mm-hmm. but I, I think the access we had to the players back then allowed us to get to know them better and they get them to know us better and allow us to do greater stories about them then now and, and now the scary thing about with, with the nightmare that is covid like the last game I went to, we couldn't go in the locker rooms anymore. Wow. Yeah. What is it going to be when we get through this? And until there's a vaccine, I don't see why they would let us in the locker rooms. And I understand. So it's, I think it's, um, it's going to be tough for, for journalism to, in sports, to recover from what's going on now, understandably so. Yeah, yeah, and you've uh, you personally have been a uh, sort of an advocate for um, you know elite high school basketball players uh, in terms of being them being able to you know profit off of their kind of talent um, and kind of maybe finding other ways to maybe circumvent the NCAA system. Uh, we even had uh, last week uh, Cody Topper, who's an assistant at Memphis. We had him on our on our show and he he even said that he wasn't a fan of really the NCAA pushing some of the best talent out of college basketball and that he feels like the the G League is a uh 
is a is a is a good system. Um, that they have a good system there. And wh- what do you make of what the G League has kind of you know what what do you, what do you make of their their plan right now? Obviously, they signed Jalen Green, who was supposed to go to Memphis and decided to go to the G League, sign Isaiah Todd, Dacian Nix, Kai Soto. Um, what do you make of this new uh, initiative that pays players, you know, anywhere from 200000 to a million, depending on who you ask? Uh, um, I don't think it's a million. I think... Yeah, I think, I think Green, uh, I think it's 500000 I think. Yeah. I think Jalen's probably getting around six hundred. Um, which is tremendous amount of money um and the the minimum is 125k i I wonder what took players this long like if you're an elite player like why go to australia why go to china why go to italy like i talked to brandon jennings about it who went to italy out of high school he he told me that if they had this route he would have went this route Mm -hmm. like not a pay the paid like this part changed the game. Yeah. And it, it, it needed somebody of note. Like if you needed a Jackie Robinson, Jalen Green was the best one. Right. You, 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 I've, I've spent some time with Jalen. Bright kid. Gets it. Socially gets it. Understands that he's a role model. Wants to be a role model. Just a good kid. And he got game. He could play. Yes, he can. So for him to be the Jackie Robinson, so to speak, of this is I think it's perfect. He's the right guy, and it. But if he didn't jump into the pool, I don't think these others would have jumped into the pool. So in essence, they even had to give him a grander number because I think that Sharif Abdul Rahim and Rod Strickland were smart enough to understand that if they landed a Jalen Green, the number one guy, that was a game changer for them. I laugh at the NCAA because their greed helped cause this. And to me, all they had to do was, if I'm them, the sponsorship thing, having agents get them money, like, I did that a long time ago. Yeah, it's something we've Don't take any, like, one thing that's not, that's not being talked about is it takes zero dollars out of their pocket. Yeah. Zero. They lose not one penny. They still ain't paying nobody, right? <laughs> Did I yeah. miss that? Yeah, you're yeah. right. They still ain't paying nobody. They're just saying, so what they're basically saying is, if you're an elite player and Jimmy's Pizza wants to, like, give you a, a sponsorship deal and go sign some autographs, and all for it. But who's really going to benefit from it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. One percent, the one percenters of college sports. Like, ain't nobody at San Jose State gonna make no money. <laughs> yeah. Ball yeah. State. Yeah. George Mason. Like, now nah, if you're an SEC kid, if you're a Pac-12 kid, perhaps there's some money to be made. Like, I remember um, Devin Booker saying that the day he declared at Kentucky. He did an autograph signing for fifty thousand dollars. If you're if you're a, a restaurant or you're a store, and you're at LSU, right? And you invited Joe Burrow to come do autograph signing. 
the business you would get because Joe Burrow walked in the door. Yeah. Or in these cities where they're like fanatical, but in the Bay Area they're not they're not college sports fanatical. Like I'm thinking about all the people that came through here college wise. Like Jason Kidd might have made a couple dollars. Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck. Yeah. Right. Who? Jalen Brown. Yeah. No. Jalen wouldn't have made no money. Jalen yeah. wasn't no Bay Area star. Yeah. He's Jaylen from Atlanta, Brown too. So. He's better at the Celtics than he ever was at Cal. Yeah. Yeah. And, right he, and he was only here, like, what, a year? Yeah, one year. So he wasn't established. So, like, if Jalen would have went to Kentucky, yeah, it would have been different. Or, you know, if you play football at LSU, it's a different ball game. But if you're going to, like, like even the you know, UCLA kids, people in the LA don't care really no more. Maybe yeah. they do about USC football, and mm-hmm. if, if you're a Heisman candidate, or like think about it, was Russell Westbrook renowned when he played at UCLA? No, Daniel Bannon was like so. Like when in basketball, I think it's harder to like make money off of this because the best players don't stay long. Like, yeah. like Devin Booker wasn't no star at Kentucky. People, and he made 50000 because he played Kentucky basketball. So, like, I think this helps the Kentuckys and the Kansases in terms of basketballs or the LSUs and football, you know, because they, if, if, like, if you're in a major metropolitan market, like if you're playing for Washington, there's too much going on. You live, you play for Stanford. I paid. I bought season tickets since over the last ten years. I bought season tickets to see Andrew Luck at Stanford for two years. I I, I just knew Andrew Luck was special. Yeah. So I paid for that. I don't think I've been to a Stanford game since Andrew Luck left. <laughs> so, to me. It was a, it, it could have been a brilliant move a long time ago for the NCA to just say, Well, I mean, if they're this good, then they'll get money. But they're still not paying the players. Which is wrong. Yeah. Another thing is so it ain't no victory. To me, it ain't no victory for the college athlete because they're still making billions and these kids aren't seeing anything. Just give them all like an extra hundred and fifty dollars a month, man. You want to really shut it, shut it down? Just do that. Yeah. Like Northwestern, if they would have unionized, like their football team tried to unionize a while ago. Another thing like that isn't talked about is how many college athletes who do play four years, which is the majority of them, leave their schools with injuries that bother them the rest of their life. Yeah. They get health insurance after they leave? No. They should be guaranteed health insurance for a couple of years, but the players, they're young, they're not thinking like that. You know, it, it should be about health insurance too. Once you yeah, once yeah. you leave that school, ah, I know you had ACL surgery or shoulder surgery or you had those five six concussions, but you're not here anymore. So we'll give you tickets to the game. Yeah, and you would hope you, that. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Uh, I I hope that there is a. I don't think it really changes for the college athlete until they unionize. 
Now, uh, one of the stories you've also covered a great deal was or is the lack of diversity in NBA front offices. Now, the NFL has had even worse issues um, in regards to hiring black coaches and uh, black executives. They've caught a lot of heat for this new proposal that would tie draft compensation compensation with uh, black hires. Uh, what do you think are the ways the NBA or the NFL can effectively address this issue? Because these leagues are overwhelmingly black, but the uh, the men running these teams and uh, coaching these teams just they they don't reflect the and, the, the workers. And we even saw it with uh, Chicago. You know, they didn't obviously they didn't really interview a a a minority executive outside of maybe Bobby Webster uh, in Toronto. Uh, for their top executive job, and yeah. you know, obviously ended up hiring Mark Eversley, but this yeah. is an issue that's obviously out there in the NBA as well as the NFL. One, I think the players need to say something, mm. like because they they could change that immediately. Like it, if they deem it important to the league, important to the teams, like anytime there's a, that kind of uh, position, head coach, front office. What if the star says respectfully to the owner or whoever's doing the hiring, hey, I'm, I'm curious as what are you guys are trying to do? Mm-hmm. What kind of group are you guys interested in? Like the players usually turn, turn their back to it. it but they have power. Nothing the players got to realize that there's going to be a day when they unlace their shoes and they're going to want those positions. Exactly. So if you don't start fighting for others now, why should somebody fight for you when you're done? Right? So yeah. I think it starts with the players speaking up about the league 75% black, the league's mostly color, then the majority needs to sp- speak out about the lack thereof. And and that could change things. Um, I think the NBA is trying, man. But as I told Mark Tatum, who's doing a fantastic job, and Ora Stewart, who's in charge of diversity with the NBA, Mark Mark, Mark Tatum's uh, deputy commissioner, like, they don't own the teams. You can't force anybody to do anything. Yeah. There's one black owner. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Right? I, I mean, there's a guy, I guess, uh, Asian owner now in, in yes, with and Brooklyn. Yes, Right? Yeah. But... A lot of times, it's not even racism. It's just people are just calling their friends, asking them who they should look at. Mm -hmm. I think it was perhaps maybe the deal in Chicago. I don't think the Bulls are racist. I think they just didn't have anybody black on their Rolodex. Yes, in in the the uh, circle. In in their circle. Exactly. And so I think maybe what the NBA needs to do is start doing some things like during Summer League, have mixers where – they invite the owners to come, the general managers to come, the presidents, and invite all these different people of color to come, women to come, that have potential, like handpicked people, so they could meet folks, shake hands, or not shake hands, hit elbows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get to know yeah. these people. Um, because sometimes it's racist. A lot of times it's just like, I don't know, know anybody like this. Like, I remember when I was chair of the National Association of Black Journalists, five about five years ago, I went to the Associated Press Sports Editors Convention to try to implore them to look at 
journalists from our membership. Mm. And I go into this meeting, and there's about 100 to 200 sports editors there. I just remember going into this big room, big ballroom, and there might have been like five black faces, five faces of color, a handful of women. And I'm like, that's why no, none of us are getting hired. Ain't nobody here that looks like them. Yeah. And so it was astounding to me that a lot of these guys were saying, well, we don't know where to go. We can't find qualified black candidates. And I said, look, you call me, <laughs> and I'll give you three to five names of qualified people. And I'm not telling you that you need to hire them. But if you give them a true opportunity to show that they're qualified for this job, then I bet you'll start hiring some of these people. And immediately the numbers started going up. So yeah. I was getting the calls. So I was getting the calls because their bosses were on their asses about being more diverse. You know, so how much of them really wanted to do it or how much they were mandated to do it, I don't know. But don't tell me that there ain't nobody qualified, which is what I wrote basically to the Bulls. There's a lot of qualified people. What do you think about the saying uh, Arturis isn't the best hire, but at least let some qualified brothers, sisters, women, whoever come to the table and, and interview for the job. And if you don't think they're the best, then so be it. But you might be impressed. You just what, might what be impressed. The, uh... And, uh, so hiring the best, not the best man, hire the best person. And to hire the best person, you need a diverse group of people to choose from. So I, I hope that maybe with this bull story kind of woke up the rest of the league to let them know, like, you know, yeah. society's watching. There is some 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 <laughs> media watching. Yeah. Should be more. Shouldn't right. just be black journalists. There's, there should be more black journalists writing about this. But, you know, part of it may be, maybe them being scared of ruffling the, 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 the cage. There should be more white journalists writing about this. Right. Or what do you think about the scared uh, to write about things that just affect them. Right. Because I, I, I say stuff about Asians that, um, you know, misrepresented. I'll say stuff about women. I'll say we should care about diversity Across the board. As a whole. Yeah. Not just diversity about black folks, Asian folks, as a whole. And Kendall, you were asking about the uh, the NFL. You said with the NFL. Yeah, yeah no, I wanted to ask, what do you think about the NFL's proposal about actually boosting draft compensation for hiring minority candidates? It's kind of sad. Yeah. Mm. Because I don't want, uh, like, one thing, I always hear this thing. I remember this old, like, racist saying to her, nobody want. we don't want to be forced. Nobody wants to be forced. It feels kind of forced. Like, you're going to get a a, a cookie because you hire somebody black? <laughs> like, yeah, I understand, but you should want to. You should want to do better. You should want to be more diverse. Yeah. Why don't you call out people that don't? Why don't you put out the numbers publicly that are giving up, uh, you know, ribbons 
start maybe rewarding franchises, not from draft picks, but have have some awards for diversity. Yeah, those, those are the kind of thing I like. Give teams award for for or give out grades, public grades. Richard Lapchick does it every year. Make it public. You know what? This team, the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, like I, I don't know what the Philadelphia Eagles' grade is, but make public. That's you want to do something. Make public grades about a team's front office or lack thereof, or people of color, or 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 the coaches, and and it goes to PR too, doctors too, the whole franchise. Let let's. Start pushing out what Rich, Richard Lapchick eloquently has been, you know, find his findings. That's how you, I think, true change is made, is telling people the truth about what their numbers are. And maybe, maybe some that that fan pace, depending on where it is, maybe they don't really care, but society cares, and maybe it may make someone think twice about: Do I really want to? support this franchise that doesn't really support my people. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I see what they're doing. It's creative, I guess, you know, but I just think they there needs to be more transparency of what people are, like, honor the people publicly that are doing things. Don't give them a higher draft pick. Like, Right. And now it seems like a different game to me. Like, oh, shoot, we want to move up in the draft. So, hey, uh, Mr. Jackson, come in. You know? <laughs> yeah. So we want to move our draft status. Oh, geez. Yeah, um, I don't think that it at all. Kendall, you got it? Yeah, no, I was going to say, uh, you know, we talked about the last dance being out and that being kind of a chronicle of. Oh, you're robbing down, or... man. Like, yeah. bring me back up. Yeah, exactly. But uh, we've, uh, but you actually are coming out this fall with a uh, a biography of someone that we haven't seen a lot on, yeah. or we haven't heard a lot about, and that's uh, Spencer Haywood. Uh, you and Gary Washburn are writing this book, uh, the Spencer Haywood Rule: yeah. Battles, Basketball, and the Making of an American Iconoclast. Uh, of course, Gary Washburn also, you know, writer from the, from the Boston Globe. Uh, tell us a little bit a bit about that project because obviously the last dance is something about you know a guy Michael Jordan that we've heard decades decades of kind of different stories on, but Spencer Haywood somebody a little more under the radar for a lot, especially younger uh, fans. Tell us a little bit about this project. Um, we've been we started interviewing him last summer uh, during summer league. I've known Spencer for a while. His story is incredible. Um, Go read what I wrote about him in Undefeated. Like, he actually grew up as a baby picking cotton. His story is absolutely crazy. He was the star basketball player in the 68 Olympics during the Black Power Movement. He used to be married to Ahmad. He got kicked off of the Lakers for doing drugs the year they won a championship. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, like so uh, act insult to injury there. Thirty for thirty. It's just he played so long ago that I think a lot of people don't understand how amazing the story had. So it was great to collaborate on with my good friends Gary, who's actually been covering the NBA since the mid nineties. Um, you guys should definitely have him on the show. 
Uh, but I, I think this story is so amazing. It could end up being, for sure, a, a bigger documentary, maybe even a movie. Uh, but but to basically be from Silver City, Mississippi, during a time that still felt like slavery in a lot of ways, and, and, and there certainly was a lot of racism and fear to become the person that he is now, um, one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard in sports. So I'm really excited about this book coming out and um, the world getting to know more about uh, a guy that, if you put a first team, dream team included, all first team USA basketball team, you have to put Spencer Haywood on it. Wow. Till I think recently he had the best scoring average in the history of USA basketball for the Olympics. And he did this at like 19 years old. He averaged like 20 a game or something like that. Um, off a junior college. He was playing for a junior college. It wasn't like he was playing for no big school. His his story is dad died during his youth and his dad was like a great um, he built houses. You know, like his story is crazy. Just racism he dealt with being a caddy as a kid at the golf course after JFK died. Like the stories are crazy, man. So I'm just, I'm going to be quiet and let y'all read the book when it comes out. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing project. I was just reading the preview, and I was like, why don't I know any of this about Spencer Haywood? Uh, you know, I like to consider myself a basketball historian, and I knew Haywood as a player, but uh, wow, talk about uh, an incredible story. I think a lot of people are going to want to check that book out. But uh, Mark Spears of ESPN's Undefeated, I cannot thank you enough for doing this uh for us this was a great conversation i really hope oh. at some point we can uh come back and do this again this was awesome Real quick last yeah. dance was amazing did we talk last dance We've been we, d- we did a little bit yeah we, yeah, yeah talk no, about the last dance just, a little bit. Uh, real quick i think the last dance is is great for the younger generation to learn more about michael jordan and this might be the last we ever hear from him he doesn't do interviews yeah and people have to understand that like this was classic jordan um and he, he doesn't speak. So this is the Jordan Bible. Yeah. We'll never hear right. from him again. And I think now the younger generation knows how great he is. And it's time for Larry Bird, Doc Necks, and a Magic Johnson. You yes, know, and, please. And, and Oscar Doc, Robinson. Yeah. Career. Like, I think the gener- younger generation needs to, like, see these things so they can understand how great these guys are that they they never got to see in person. So, but no, but thank you for having me on, man. I know you guys been painstakingly trying to figure this out for a while. (laughs) But we did it. And um, it it was a pleasure talking to you guys. And uh, I look, continue success and and look forward to watching you guys rise. Thank you so much for the kind words, Mark. Uh, Good luck and stay safe uh, during this, during these tough times. All right, brother. Good to Thank talk you. to you, Alman. All right, Thank peace. You. Later.